0: Welcome to episode 58 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Diane and Ruth. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Diane and Ruth, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Today's show is an interview with Michelle, who wrote to us last week and suggested relapse as a topic. When I talked with her, I found her story to be so compelling and powerful that I wanted to share it with you in its entirety. So we're postponing the relapse topic for another week. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. Hi, this is Spencer, and I am talking on the phone with Michelle. Hi, Michelle, how are you doing today?
1: I'm fine. How are you, Spencer?
0: I am good. Uh, I am looking out the window at a lot of snow, but good. Why don't uh, Why don't we start, um, tell us your story about how you came to the program.
1: Okay, well, um, I guess everything started when my son was right around 13 or 14 years old. He um, had had a binge drinking experience at a party and um, told us about it. So we thought to ourselves, well, you know, kids will experiment and at least he's told us about it. And we told him we didn't think it was a very good idea to be doing that and Anyway, he um, seemed to seemed to do okay for a while after that. But there were some personality changes that really concerned us about him um, as he entered his uh, late eighth grade, early ninth grade period. Where we, we really started to feel as if he was starting to have a very sort of um, angry and volatile personality, and the changes disturbed us and concerned us enough that we started taking him to a a psychiatrist to make sure that he didn't have any mental issues. I do have an uncle who was schizophrenic, and his mm-hmm. onset was right around that age. So that was definitely a concern for us. Yeah. And we took him, and um, as has happened and has been a pattern since then, his therapist became completely enthralled with him and thought he was just a wonderful person. Uh, my son essentially is a sociopath and can manipulate people into – adoring him, especially people that are in control of anything that he wants access to. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, he he's, can be a very charming person and he just completely took this guy in and I guess uh, confided some things about drug use to him that we weren't aware of, but uh, those were hidden from us. And at that time he started, um, he got an ADHD diagnosis and started taking Adderall hmm. and to Adderall for some time, we weren't really convinced that he had any sort of hyperactivity disorder, but he was certainly very disorganized in school and performing below what we knew to be his intellectual, you know, capability yeah. and had been in the past. And so we got him the prescription and I guess it was probably the first time we really knew that anything super out of the ordinary was going on again. He was still continuing to be sort of out of control in terms of wanting to party with his friends and things like that. But we still sort of thought it all fell under the umbrella of things that some kids do in high school. Yeah. Um, So we weren't orchestrating any interventions or anything. We had the reassurances from the psychiatrist that he was okay on the mental health front. And, uh, so we just continued to take him for his Adderall appointments, get his Adderall prescription and whatnot. He we went to my parents for a visit in the fall and it was actually, um, it was a strange weekend. His behavior was very odd. He slept a lot and, um, sort of seemed like he might be coming down with something. And as we were coming home that night, we, um, we noticed he was just really behaving oddly and we came home and we, Got into the house, got the luggage unloaded, and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And he insisted on staying awake to do some calculus homework. So we were like, "Well, that's good."
2: Yeah. Um,
1: so we left him up to do that, and he was um, at the kitchen table, still acting a little odd. But you know, he had been kind of sick all weekend, so we didn't do too much of it. And the next morning, he woke up and he was lying on the sofa, and he had wet his pants. And all that was on the notebook paper was a series of triangles. And it turned out that he had had his first overdose.
0: What was he taking? Um, Do you know? I'm he sure. took some
1: Ativan that my parents had in a drawer in their um, in their bedroom that was left over from a script that my dad had had some time past. Hmm. And um, his story was not that it was an intentional overdose, with, but with that he'd taken a couple and forgotten how many he'd taken and taken some more. We went ahead and made him go to school that day, sort of wanting to have him suffer his consequences.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Didn't realize how serious it was. And uh, he was, it was really to the point where he could barely, he could barely, speak. he was having a hard time forming words. word. And later on, I spoke to a friend of mine who was um, a social worker and said to her, looking back, I regret that we didn't take him to the hospital. It's really scary. I guess he could have overdosed. And she said, if you had, you may have lost him. Um, really? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well technically speaking you could have been charged with neglect for that hat and they could have taken him and put him in foster system hmm. and that was when we first started to get a feel for what an incredibly challenging and odd um, order that you walk when you have a child with addiction problems who's underage
0: really i hadn't heard hadn't had thought about that and in
1: retrospect we kind of wish we had done that because it might have blown the lid off everything but we sort of bought his bought his you know, his statement that he just had lost track of how many he'd taken and whatnot. So we got through another year, and, you know, he still kind of colored within the lines to an extent. He still made decent grades in school and was starting to take some honors courses. He wouldn't do any extracurricular activities or anything. The kids that he hung out with were really well-to-do. A lot of them were very smart, too, and so they were all taking AP courses and things like that all the things that you look for. Um lot of kids from an adjacent neighborhood here that's extremely wealthy. Mm. Um, so kind of running with a fast crowd that way. And so I guess it was probably second semester of his junior year. By then it had gotten to be a pattern that he would, you know, it was pretty clear that he was doing some pretty heavy partying on the weekend. And we tried to put limits on that behavior, but met with complete lack of success. Meanwhile, we were trying to shield our younger child from whatever repercussions there were there there was a seventy year age difference um well, I guess there still is, yeah, and so we wanted to have as normal a life for him as we could and he was only seven when his brother was fourteen, so there was a little bit of denial going on with trying to keep everything uh kind of kosher for him
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um it was probably I don't remember if it was his junior year. I think it was his junior year. I'm pretty sure it was. No, I can't remember at this point whether, I think it may have been his senior year that we finally found out that he was actually um, trading his Adderall for opiates at school, for OxyContin. Uh, uh. And um, so at that time he ended up actually, I ended up kind of finding out in a weird way. I had added texting to my phone and somehow I still won't really understand what happened. I received his text for about 24 hours.
2: Hmm.
1: The first 24 hours that I had texting, and during that time, I received texts that indicated that a teacher of his had confronted him about his drug abuse. And he basically told the teacher that he was going to get help. Well, at that time, we did confront him and said, you know, this looks like we've gone to a whole other page of this. Yeah. And that's when I started going to Naranon. And he started, or, um, yeah, Naranon, and he started going to the NA meetings that were held at the same time.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And for a while, it looked like things were going to turn around, and he went ahead, and he had already applied to colleges. I think it must have been fall of senior year, because he was applying to colleges, and um, ended up getting into a college that um, he wanted to go to. It was a decent school. Um, He ended up graduating with a 4.0, only because he had um, taken lots of honors, AP-type courses, and done decently, and you still get higher grade points for those.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
1: So on paper, he still looked fine. So we had this really crazy summer where he pretty much almost didn't even live at home. But again, just weren't wanting to really confront things. I guess we were still pretty deep in denial. We thought he had taken care of his narcotic problem. He said he didn't want to go to any meetings because all people talked about was doing drugs, and that just made him want to do worse drugs than he already did or knew about. So um, we got through that summer where basically he just kind of came home to change clothes. And was hanging out with a whole new set of friends that really made me uncomfortable when I did see them, which wasn't frequently. Mm-hmm. And um, he got so drunk the night of his graduation that he had to be carried up our stairs. And my parents were here, and then he tried to climb up our main floor stairs and fell down the stairs and hit his head on the landing. Um, and that night, I have to say, I really was not sure whether he would wake up in the morning. Mm. That was how messed up he was. Mm. But again, you know, um, it just—it felt—it felt too scary to take him to the hospital. I'm in healthcare myself, and I would know people down there and stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. It just
1: felt too—I don't know. It, it, I think on some level, the way denial works for any any family member, but especially a parent, is that once you've really said it out loud, then it's true. Once you've interface with a doctor or some authority, then it's really happening. And yeah. frankly, the attempts we've made in the past to to get help with him really hadn't, hadn't met with any success or honesty. Um, so that was discouraging, too. So we ended up taking him to college, and right from the start, I felt like that was a mistake. Um, he went to a school out in the western part of our state, um, that is known, well, actually, we have several schools that are known for having a fair amount of drug activity. They're good schools, but we knew that that subtext was going to be there, but we were really hoping he'd turn over a new leaf, and he wasn't at all normal during college orientation activities or during our drop-off or anything like that. He didn't behave the way I would think would be a normal way for a kid to behave toward his parents, and his little brother, and I remember turning to my husband, and saying after we'd gone through the whole orientation spiel, I would feel more comfortable leaving my younger son—I won't say his name, but he's 11.
0: Mm.
1: He was 11 at the time. I'd feel more comfortable leaving him here than his brother.
0: Hm. Yeah, that's sort of a signal. Um.
1: Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, we um we heard from him intermittently and. He it didn't take long for him to get a drinking citation, which probably actually was more of an opiate citation, although I don't think the police officer, in, in the case, knew what he was dealing with. And so we um, paid the court costs on that, had him work those off with chores around the house. And then we got further into things, and the semester wore on, and then we got... Uh, the way things are set up now, unless your child gives you permission to to get their grades or get access to their grades, you can't see them even though you're paying tuition. Yeah. And they can give you the access and then reverse the access access 12 hours later or or as soon as they get back to their dorm room. So we knew things weren't going like they should be, but by the time February rolled around, he ended up getting, um, they say suspended from school. It seemed more like expelled to me. Um, and he was, uh, he was, um, he had supposedly one of the highest cocaine levels they had ever had on a test that he took. Mm. Um, and it was a test he knew he was going to have to take. He was already on probation. So anyway, he ended up getting thrown out of college and that began a pattern of uh, behavior where we told him that he couldn't come home. That he was going to have to, he was going to have to come up with another plan. We, we were our wits end with all this. We didn't know what to do. We still didn't know the extent to, to which he was doing drugs and we didn't know what drugs were involved. yeah, um we had no idea that he was that he was shooting IV heroin um and had been for probably at least six months or so altogether probably was before, by the time he went to college
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so um you know, things would happen. Like I remember that Christmas, my mother gave me spoons. I said, mom, why did you give me spoons for Christmas? She said, well, I noticed around Thanksgiving, you don't have very many spoons. And my son became quite excited by this gift. Well, of course, in retrospect, you know what was probably happening to my spoons.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: couldn't keep cotton in the house. I couldn't keep any whipped cream in the fridge. That kept disappearing. And God forbid anyone come down with a cough because there was no cough medicine to be found. All this started to sort of like come together in our minds and he went to live with another family. Um another family in the spring of the the year that he got turned out of college, he went straight from our house to another person's house and convinced his family that we had unjustly thrown him out of the house. Hmm. He had innocently maybe gotten pot smoking pot at school or something and we'd we we would not let him come home because of that. Well, a lot of people smoking pot's just fine, and so these people took him in and gave him a chance to get on his feet and uh, maybe get a job. He could probably still be living with them now, but he slept all day, and turned out one of the brothers of this person that he lived with was on Suboxone, which is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a drug that they yeah. use theoretically to help heroin addicts get off Suboxone or get off heroin. Yeah. We've since discovered that, at least in our opinion, it's just as addictive, has just as much street value, and can provide the same high as heroin. And um, anyway, at that time, he was caught stealing this other guy's Suboxone, and so that family ended up throwing him out. Well, he came to us and said, I just need a chance to be clean, I just need my own Suboxone prescription so I can taper off, and I I just need your help. So we took him back in the house, and... At this point, I was having to take him to the psychiatrist sometimes two to three times a week,
2: Hmm.
1: um, 45 minutes away because not many people prescribe this. Uh, The the, um, psychiatrist was extremely expensive. The prescription was extremely expensive. And I was expected to get to a meeting a day. And um, they were all over the place because NA isn't nearly as abundant as AA is. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So it was basically taking over my life. And this went on for about, I would say, five or six weeks. And his behavior became odder and odder. And one night he was on the sofa and it was pretty clear to me that he was really impaired. Mm -hmm. So the next day I went through the stuff in his garbage can and found a hypodermic meal. Mm -hmm. And we told him he couldn't live here anymore. So he replicated his whole pattern again, went out and lived with a family. He's, again, Mm -hmm. was very good at taking people in, getting them to believe the story. He went through several other cycles of living with different people who tried to give him a shot at getting himself together and pretty much just grazed in their medicine cabinets and slept all day and made it pretty clear that he had no interest in that. He went through a period of homelessness. Um, and I guess committed a few crimes to support his habit that I'm aware of, but I won't I don't need to really go that far into that. And then I guess he told us he had a period of clean time. By then, we weren't buying, we weren't supporting the whole Suboxone thing anymore, but he told us he went through some rapid detox thing in Asheville, which is another part of our state, where there's a big heroin problem right now around their university, and they supposedly had these rapid detox teams come in, and literally, they they would detox you in like a weekend, and they can do that. There are certain injections they can use and stuff like that. The thing is, one thing I've learned in, in being around all three programs, well, really four if I count AA, because my sponsor happens to also be an AA and requires a lot of AA reading for you to be here for sponsorship. I think that there's such a spiritual illness, that, yeah. you know, it's a spiritual disease, and, and she could get detox and several times did and would say, okay, I'm all done now. But yeah. He wouldn't work on the spiritual aspect of it, and before he knew it, he would... He's also an alcoholic, so he would drink to blackout and use drugs or use drugs and then drink or all three or both or whatever. And so he kept getting into trouble with that. And finally, he said he had put together some clean time and had almost he had almost lost an arm to an abscess in this summer. And he came to us and said, I'm on the street again. I don't think I can stay clean if I'm on the street. And uh, so I start, you know, going to a doctor again. And we took him to the doctor found a different doctor, actually found two different doctors, because he had a couple of things going on, and one doctor did the one thing, and one doctor did the other, and they ended up putting him on, like on suboxone, one doctor did, and the other doctor put him on clonopin, which I've heard since, they're, they should never be prescribed together, mm. and um, he basically had one of his psychiatrist's process getting him an apartment and said oh I'll you know get a job and help with the rent and eventually take over the rent and so that started in October of last year and we kept him in the apartment through February um, we signed a short-term lease and um, he never got a job and ended up letting he had a one-bedroom apartment and he ended up letting like five other people come live there with him and it was basically sort of like a almost like a crack house by the mm. time it was over with. And he um, ended up getting in trouble with um, some drug dealers and there was some gang activity that occurred and they actually actually ended up discharging some automatic weapons mm. in that area. And so he ended up getting evicted from that apartment. Wow. He went pistol whipped. and got to- pistol-whipped and went to the hospital. And so then he moved out. He moved left there and went to stay with yet another friend's family. And at that point, decided for the first time, maybe he needed to go to rehab. This was the first time he had ever admitted that he had enough of a drug problem that he might actually formally need to go to rehab. And we said all along, well, if you ever decide you want to go to rehab, we will help you with that. We're no longer going to help you with living expenses or anything. But if you ever do decide you want to go to rehab, let us know and we'll do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we did. So he went to his first rehab, I want to say, in March of last year. Stayed for, you know, twenty eight thirty days and left and said he was going to live with a friend of his, which he did for a while. And then. He ended up relapsing, so he went back again, came back out, and went to a sober house, and that seemed to be going pretty well, and he stayed at the sober house for, oh gosh, I want to say maybe three weeks or so, Mm -hmm. and then said they had too many rules and stuff, and the same friend came down and got him, and they left. There's always lots of enabling friends around. Oh, yeah. They were going to camp and stuff you know, and see the world and take pictures of it and journal and all this stuff. And maybe have a blog. Yeah. So that ended up about the way you would think it would. And he ended up going to jail at some point in there for some stupid thing, like carrying a big knife, not even using it, just carrying it, which basically means he knocked off at a policeman. And then he came and asked my husband if he could go to rehab a third time. My husband said, well, it'll be up to you, but it's, You know, his rehab that he generally goes through down in Florida, he said, if they'll they'll take you back and if they'll send you a plane ticket, go, you know. Mm -hmm. So he went a third time, came back out, went to the same sober house and put together 90 days of sobriety. And then we started getting all kinds of odd feedback about what was going on at the sober house. Sometimes it seemed like there were tons of people there. Uh, people were constantly getting kicked out for using. He still didn't have a job, even though, again, at this point, we're once again footing the bill for his living expenses, mm-hmm. and he's supposed to be getting himself together. We're paying the sober house directly, so we haven't given him any direct cash in quite some time, because even when he lived in the apartment, we paid all of his bills directly. We didn't ever give him cash. And he uh, basically ended up relapsing after that, and now he's gone... Back to um back to oh, back to rehab. This is a different rehab because after three times the first rehab wouldn't take him anymore. Yeah. It's sort of like a sponsor, eventually they fire you, I think. <laughs> so he is now at another rehab and I guess one insight that I did end up having that I thought was a real Al anon insight was I uh he um needed to take a bus ride to get to this other rehab. Uh-huh because it's uh, four hours away. Well, I looked it up online when I was sending him his bus ticket and it took him 10 hours to get there by bus. And I knew that he might be starting to withdraw by the time he really got there. And yeah, I thought to myself, you know, this time last year, this time six months ago, I would have printed off that itinerary and ridden that bus with him.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I would have known what stop was next. I would have called him between every stop to make sure that I think they had two bus changes. Uh-huh. I would have made sure he was eating. I would have had extensive conversations with him about his state of mind. What I did was I emailed him the itinerary, made sure he knew where the bus pass was to pick up, arranged with his sober house that he had food for meal, and went about my life. Yeah. My husband called me that day while he was on the bus and said, how are you doing? And I said, You know, I think I finally understand after all of this, I'm not riding the damn bus. Yeah. He's riding the bus. I wish he didn't have to ride the bus, and he's made some choices that put him on the bus, but ultimately it's his bus to ride. And if he doesn't get there or makes choices about how he gets there or gets off on the way or whatever, I have no control over that. All I can do is, you know, give him the tools to get on the bus if he wants to go. Yeah, and he did indeed make it there, you know, but that to me really showed me how far I've come. And it's been the work of four programs. I've had Al Anon and then I've had um Narnon with my 1st mm-hmm. I read a lot of literature from both um NA and from AA, And uh I think I think one thing that made me understand what things are like from his perspective is doing a lot of AA reading that my sponsor had me do. Mm -hmm. And I think at the root of most addiction, alcoholism or, or drugs is what they call in Alcoholics Anonymous, the great obsession, Uh which is the conviction that you can find a normal way to drink. Yeah. Or in his case, you know, as I say to him sometimes, you've got to get your mind around the fact that heroin is not part of a specially balanced breakfast. <laughs> you can't make this a part of your lifestyle. And one thing I hadn't realized until I got the education I've gotten in the last 18 months or so is there are people apparently that can use heroin recreationally. I didn't know that. But there are people that can use it on the weekends and be fine the rest of the time, just as I think a lot of people discovered during the 80s. Some people could do that with cocaine. Yeah. And, of course, he ends up hooking up with people that fall in that category. So
2: hmm. he
1: doesn't understand in a really fundamental way, since he's only he's turning 21 tomorrow, he just has no basic understanding of the fact that he absolutely can't recreationally use drugs or alcohol. He can't.
0: And, and it, it yeah. drives
1: him nuts that other people can, but he can't.
0: Yeah. yeah, and, and I hear really that I hear that from my friends in uh, in AA, my alcoholic and, and addict friends, that you know, yeah, they they can't. Um they don't understand those of us who can no, um, drink exactly. a beer and I mean, then go home. Or drink right, part of a exactly. beer and leave the rest.
1: Um, right. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think one thing I'd really urge people to do who are in the Al Anon camp, as it were, is not to, not to view them as being on the other side. I think your key to understanding your alcoholic or addict can be, can really lie in studying their literature, going to their open talks, and kind of getting inside their head. I'm not saying so that you can enable better, that's not what I mean. But yes. I think it's really given me a kind of core empathy for what he goes through, and it's done a lot to mitigate the anger that I have with him. Absolutely. Overdoing this to himself and our family.
0: Absolutely, I had I had that basically that same experience in coming to understand the struggle that my uh, my wife was going through. That because at the beginning I had no no concept. Uh, you know, why can't you just drink normally? That was my thought. I mean, and, well, it seems uh, it, so volitional,
1: you know, and it's not for them. It just yeah.
0: isn't it took a lot of open talks uh, for me to to really get it. So,
1: well, that's one area where podcasting has really helped me a lot because <clears throat> he's been in my ear a lot the last year, and and so is Mark, and then of course I also listen to AA open talks and things. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, sprung in my throat, but that's been really helpful. But I would say that you know, over all of this, the, the first three steps have always been for me the fundamental steps for for someone in Al-Anon, um, really accepting at your core that you have no control over your addict or alcoholic and then um realizing that your only route to sanity is to acknowledge that lack of control and find a way to live with it and for most of us i think we end up finding the way to live with it through giving our will over to a higher power and asking for help that way
0: so when you first came to realize that um Your son was an addict. Um, How long before his first rehab was that? Do you remember?
1: Oh, from the time that you have to realize that we did have him under psychological care and he was supposedly in Suboxone therapy. True. I found out later on that he was, um, and I knew at that point that he was an IV drug user. I found out that later on that what he was doing was he kept telling me he had allergies and he wanted Benadryl, and what he was doing was he was. actually taking apart Benadryl capsules and putting those in water, and injecting that. He would also take the sublingual, um, the tabs that you're supposed to put under your tongue. And he would melt those in water and inject those. Mm. Um, he also would do something that was very common for people. It was very common for people with suboxone prescriptions. I know now from friends that I have and stuff and from him, because he'll tell me all this stuff once it's over with. Yeah. They'll generally talk their doctors into prescribing, say, eight milligrams when their real need is four to stay off. After all, and then they'll either trade the other four for something else they want, or they will. Um, the other thing that they they do sometimes is they will um, sell the other four and mm-hmm. then use that money for what they want or for, for other stuff. Um, so of course, it's almost impossible for someone to be involved in drug addiction without being also involved in some illegal drug trade either on the buying or selling end or both.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so he was doing all that, but between the time, I would say between, say, the time that we knew when he got kicked out of school that something fairly major was happening, I want to say it was by Easter that year that we figured out that he needed the Suboxone. Mm-hmm. And that was in April, and then it was all, probably almost a year until he made his way into actually going to his first rehab. And that was that was again a benefit of our Naranon um, our Naranon meetings because we had heard from many friends that if we forced him into rehab, it was really a waste of everyone's time. He mm-hmm. had to be to a point where he felt like he wanted to go, and he really acknowledged that he was a drug addict. Um, all of our powers of denial, um, kill by comparison to those of our addicts. It <laughs> takes them such a long time to really feel that they have a problem that, that's so apparent to the rest of us. And yeah. yeah. so when, it's when, quite a well while for him to just feel like he reached bottom that way.
0: Mm-hmm. When did you start going to Narnon then? Um, what, what I was started it going to Narnon
1: that, that as soon as he told me, let's see, I, would, I want to say spring of his senior year, year of high school. So as soon as he told me that he had been messing around with opiates, which I just thought was probably an oral thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what we've found out since, and well, what seems to be the progression for so many people that I know, is the kids start out with Oxy, they, First they take some that they've gotten from somebody's medicine cabinet or something. Yeah. First they take it orally. Then they start crushing it and snorting it. Then they start crushing it and injecting it. Then they find out heroin's $5 a bag. Right.
0: <laughs> heroin's a lot cheaper than Oxy. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: and kind of... it just goes, I mean, it, it's a progression that we've seen happen to so many people. My son has a friend who's overdosed. He has a friend in federal prison. He has numerous friends who are wasting their lives in ways similar to his. Um, and we've watched all these kids go down pretty much the same way at different velocities,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's uh,
1: that was the progression for every last one of them.
0: How did you know about our Naranan? What
1: about Naranan? Yeah. I actually only knew because um, he had wanted to go. He knew about NA somehow, and so he—I guess maybe he had seen some brochures at school or something, or maybe the teacher. I think the teacher that he ended up having that text conversation with. I know for a fact that he had done a lot in the food industry at a fairly high level and and there tends to be a lot of drug use in that industry. And I think he kind of knew how to spot it. Mm -hmm. And I think he told my son what to do about it. But my son actually initially asked to go to an R&N meeting or to an NA meeting. And then I found out that there was an R&N meeting that took place in the same building at the same time. So when I first went, it was kind of with the idea that I would go and kill an hour while he was going to his meeting, um, so, because I wasn't anything like those people and I didn't have <laughs> these problems really. And I was going to go in there and everyone was going to be wearing a motorcycle clothing and have a bunch of piercings, and of course my real my real experience was going in there and recognizing three people from soccer.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And and uh, how did that feel?
1: Well. I think I spent my first three meetings just crying and blowing snot in six directions. Um, we now actually have come around to a pattern where we offer a separate and parallel newcomers' meeting because so many of the people who come in having just realized this about their kids, you know all of a sudden you look down and your life has turned into an after school special, and all the stupid little clues around the house like missing cotton balls and Eye droppers and stuff, it all kind of comes together and crystallizes in your mind. And you're like, Oh my God. Well, those people need a space to feel like that. Uh-huh. And so what we do now is at the beginning of the meeting, we're all in one room and then we take our newcomers and one or two people will take them into another room and basically do a steps one for three meeting with them uh-huh. or really just step one. And that gives them a chance to really tell their story uninterrupted and get out a lot of their emotions and cry. Um, That's like a four Kleenex box room Um, and just sort of get through those initial stages of denial and and identification because we were finding that we were losing so many of the people who first came because I think they would hear us talking about things like detachment and when you're new to that concept, detachment sounds a lot like betrayal. Uh When you're a parent, detachment can sound a lot like abandonment and one unique thing that parents face that I don't think people in other addictive relationships do is that everything we're supposed to do is exactly, exactly counter to what you're, you're supposed to um, identify as behaviors of a good parent.
0: Right. Yeah, I. I
1: very counterintuitive programs. So people would come in and hear us talking about the, the strategies we were doing two and three and four years in dealing with our addicts. Mm-hmm. And, and they would just run screaming into the night. Either they heard stories about our kids that freaked them out completely, or they heard stories about how we were dealing with things that freaked them out completely. Huh. So now, um, this is like an easier, gentler way to bring them into the program and give them the help they need and the support they need. Hmm. Cause it is a gradual process. And it's, you know, I've really enjoyed Al Anon too. I will say the reason I went to Al Anon was that I, my Nar Anon group does not sponsor and I got to a place in my, I got to a place in my program where I really felt like I needed the accountability and the push from a sponsor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's when I started going to Allen on because I knew that that was a lot more common in that program, just from listening to your program. Really? And well, you. so basically I, I, I went looking for a sponsor, found one and have been active in both programs. But, um, I think that's a weakness in our, in our particular group. And one of my intentions was to find a way to, you know, possibly get to a point where I could mentor some people and, and
0: start sponsorship within our group too. Sounds, but, um, sounds like I a great thing to offer.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really important piece of the program that right now my group is missing. We do, we do basically what you call an wall group. Uh huh. So we do have some group movement through the steps, but it's not the same as literally having the accountability of one person. There's just something about the way my sponsor kicks my ass when I really need it. Yeah. Um, and you know, she'll she'll do stuff like she'll say, You need to cry about this. You haven't cried about this yet. I mean she's right.
0: Which is not something she's you're right. gonna get from a group.
1: No. no. But she totally won't co, co- sign my bullshit at all. She really won't. Um so that's been a really positive thing. Um so, I think as far as the materials and stuff, I found those to be very helpful. I love the gist for today's. I read those just about every day. I have a courage to change that I read every day. I have a, um, I have a, Naranon has a, we call it our blue book. It's a, Mm -hmm. um, basically it's set up like a devotional, a lot like curse changes. One thing that I have noticed between the two programs, though, is it's funny. I was talking to one of my Naranon friends and I told him I'd been enjoying the the Al-Anon meetings. He said, I think Al-Anon's a great program. They just don't quite have that death and legal drama piece that we do. (laughs) (laughs) not quite as you know and it and yeah. we all joke that we're raising the same kid because our almost all of us have sons between the ages of 17 and 25 wow
2: yeah
1: one of our slogans is keep them alive until they're 25 and the mm. back of the brain starts talking to the front um that's a very informal slogan
0: another yeah. <laughs> one that
1: i'm known for another you won't see that one printed anywhere but I another so. one i've become known for now i've brought your living in the wreckage of the future everyone really likes that one And um, another one that I've become known for that I actually, I got from someone else in the group but somehow it's gotten attributed to me is one thing we've both noticed is that in terms of our careers and stuff, we're pretty hard to ruffle now. We have a perspective on our lives that I don't think we would have ever had if this tragedy hadn't occurred. And it makes us fairly calm and cold-blooded in situations that would make a lot of other people panic. And, the joke in our group, the incredibly dark joke, is you can't scare me. My son's a heroin addict. And it literally means that you have been to the rim of a volcano and looked down and survived it.
0: I'm curious. Yeah. In the in the Naranon, in your experience of the Naranon program, it sounds like most of the members are parents.
1: Oh, yeah. Almost hands down. In fact, we feel bad when someone comes in with a spouse because we, we feel like we're not as well equipped to help them. Hmm. And, um, you know, we try, but it, it does tend to be our particular group that tend to be. In fact, often I will also make sure they know about an Al-Anon program and, and offer to take them there
2: uh-huh. and
1: say that I feel sometimes the same lack of matchup at an Al-Anon meeting and that everything's so spousally focused. But, you know, once you really get into both programs, and you start talking about recovery, it's not as much about your addict or your alcoholic as it is about where you are in your program. And at that point,
2: yeah. it
1: doesn't really matter whether you're talking about a spouse or or a child. But I think in the initial stages, when someone wants to talk about spousal stuff versus child stuff, it's very different. Yeah. So that's another purpose that sort of gets served in our newcomer meeting is we can kind of give people more individual attention like that and mm-hmm. talk to them about, you know, issues they may be having inside a marriage. And we certainly do have people come through like that. Um, But yeah, the vast majority of us are raising
0: the same kid. Interesting. Um, So would you say that, I mean, with the three treatment programs you've had, you've seen now three relapses, do you identify um, other times before he went into treatment that you would consider that he had maybe had some clean time and relapsed? Or do you think... Did you not recognize that? I mean, maybe it happened... Well, I now
1: know in hindsight that he actually tried to detox one time at home during high school. I thought he had the flu. Uh
2: Uh-huh.
1: And, um... He's told me since that he was really trying to detox then. Right. So I guess that was the first time that I'm aware of that he ever tried. Um, but you noticed, didn't
0: have the awareness then of what was happening?
1: Uh, not at all. No, I just thought he had the flu.
0: Right. So, yeah. like so, I
1: was still at, the doctor needs to send a note to school. That's where I still was at everything. You right. Know, it, it, it's hard to even not laugh out loud at this yeah. point. But yeah, mm-hmm. at that point, that was... But, we, um,
0: we don't think these I things are happening. I think
1: the way I see relapse... Hmm?
0: We don't think these things are happening. I mean, that's the denial, well, right? Well, no,
1: you don't at all. You're like, this is crazy. This is crazy talk. This yeah. is crazy. I mean, and I would mention these suspicions to my husband, and he was like, really? Really? Are you kidding me? Those things don't happen here. Those things don't happen in our neighborhood, in our socioeconomic class, among our kids with his friends. No, it doesn't. No, that's not happening.
0: Yeah. I, I, spent, oh well. I spent some time um, this weekend with a, a group of uh, high school age youth. Um, and uh, at one point, the the conversation turned to you know, drugs at school and, and uh, you know, Oxycontin and heroin. And and that is what's happening. That is the reality of what's happening in in teenagers' lives friend, these days. Yeah,
1: back when I was in high school, I mean, there, I don't even know what you would have done to get heroin.
0: Me neither. No, there were
1: always one or two people that worked with someone at the mall who had cocaine. Okay? And it was always yeah. a much older person. And they would like go to a party and do cocaine with that much older person at the party, and that was it. Yeah. You'd hear about it. It wasn't you. Yeah. It wasn't even anyone you knew. It was someone you who knew three other people that you knew. Yeah. I was somewhat of a binge drinker in the first part of college, but I had a blackout experience and just stopped. I just I thought, well, that seems like it could go south real quick, but I just didn't drink anymore. I mean, which, I do now. Which is how us normies never do it—binge like that. Well, exactly. I mean, and I I kind of figured my son would make that connection, but I guess when you really, really, really have that gene or whatever
0: it whatever is. Whatever it is, yeah.
1: Yeah, you can't not do it. He says, now when he's talking about it, I've had some really interesting conversations with him, and my son, I really believe in a fundamental way that God will use this for good at some point because my son is a really excellent writer and public speaker and has a lot of uh leadership qualities. If he ever cleans up, he can give us a better window into all of this than we've ever had. Yeah. And
0: that would be
2: awesome. I've
1: had some really great conversations with him when he was on the lucid side of things. And he basically says, if you're an addict, the first he said, you no, know, I know people that would do here and say, oh, that was interesting. I might do that again sometime. He said, I did it and said, what can I give you so I never have to not do this again? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, what so- can I
1: do to make this feeling? last all the time.
0: Yeah. So when the first time that you, you know, sort of recognized clean time, was that after his first rehab? And the first time that you recognized relapse?
1: The first time we really recognized clean time, probably after his first rehab, he stayed clean for a while. But again, he was living with a friend's family, and got yeah. caught using there.
0: And, um, and how did you feel then? How did you... Respond or react.
1: Again, I think the program really, really helped us that way because we, not to say we were expecting relapse, but we had heard so much about it from our friends. It got to be a joke in our group. People would literally start a story and say, well, the first time so-and-so went to rehab. Yeah. After qualifying it with first time, that's going to imply a second time.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's true. So
1: we weren't really surprised when the first time wasn't the charm. I mean, I think as I think I said in my email to you, I really feel for parents that come in to their first rehab thinking it's going to be like a car wash and their loved one will just come out the other side and it will be like nothing ever happened and everyone can just go on with their lives and their plans as before. And again, that gets away from that whole spiritual disease piece of it, which takes years and years of maintenance work.
0: When he relapsed the first time, um, you know, what was your response? I mean, so you were sort of expecting it, but was oh, yeah, it still? Our response
1: is, yeah, we've heard about this. Literally, that was our response. I personally don't think that the programs are long enough. And the way I've kind of thought about it is I've read that the best, most optimal time for for rehab to really, really make inroads is 90 days.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I don't think there's an insurance company in, in the Western Hemisphere that would do 90 days. So the way I looked at it was it may take my kid two or three times to get his 90 days, 30 days at a time. And one thing I will say about relapse, and I I still feel this way, as disappointing as it is to have to do this a fourth time in nine months, I think he comes out each time a little bit higher on the mountain. No pun intended. That's the hope, yes, right.
0: Yes, 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 yes.
1: I think each time he builds a little bit more on his knowledge of himself and his knowledge of the spiritual disease aspect of things and his knowledge of how how big a hold this really has on him. And um, I think each time he's gone to rehab, he's come out with a better understanding of that. Now, whether he's reached the ultimate point where this is going to be enough, I, I can't know that. I yeah. don't have a crystal ball. I've gotten to a point where I have to be comfortable knowing that I don't
0: know that. And and how did you? So I I want to come back to this um, bus ride experience that you talked about. um, That previously, you said previously you would have been. um, I guess you you were talking sort of mentally on the bus with him, following the bus along. I would have
1: printed out the itinerary. I would have checked off each point as he made that point of the itinerary. I would have texted him to ask him where he was along the way. I would have expected him to text me at least at every stop. Um, I would have made sure that he ate meals at what I perceived to be the proper times to eat meals. I would have asked how he was feeling. I would have tried to gauge whether I thought he was going to really make the trip or whether he would jump the bus early. So
0: I w- bus. when you're saying I would have... Um, is that like maybe as of the previous before relapse I had the tools
1: or the
2: experience.
0: Or No, earlier. Before I
1: had the tools and the experience that I've had and the perspective that I have mm-hmm. on this disease that I've, that I've derived from, from my experience and from listening to others and from the program and from your podcast and, and Mark's podcast, which has been very valuable to me too, you know, I've come to realize that you do the best you can as a parent, but you cannot have this experience for your children. Another thing we like to say is Mark and I are, my husband is named Mark and he, he's an extremely organized and driven person as am I. And we're both accomplished in our professions. We went to a a really good school. That's where we met. Um, If you could do this in a weekend, if your success at this, at parenting an addict or at, at helping an addict recover was dependent on focus and organization, it would be done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not. And,
1: you know, you can make that an endless source of frustration or you can use it as kind of a key of spiritual discovery about yourself as well as your Alex. I really think that in a lot of ways, this experience as negative as it has been, has given me a view and perspective on life that I never would have had any other way. And, um, I guess in that way, I can be grateful for it. I, it's hard to be grateful for something that's been such a source of anguish. Um, but, but if I have to see a silver lining, that's it. I think we look at ourselves and each other in a different way. We've often said that we've always had a really good marriage, but this has made it even stronger. Um, and we're lucky that way. I think one of the things that we've seen people go through that's very difficult is some couples are not on the same page. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's really, really helped us is that Mark started attending on right after we had to throw Ian out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He started going on. And on, mm-hmm. and he just took it in like a sponge. I mean, he was months and months behind me, but he, he was ready for that message. And I really think it helped to keep us on the same page. I think if there's any way that couples could attend together who are dealing with a child, it's the best thing you could do because, that way, when one person starts to think about things like attachment or, or what the next best way to deal with something might be, yeah. it won't seem crazy to the other person. Yes,
0: yes. So that's and, been a good thing. And I have heard those stories where one parent um, wanted to, you know, kick the kid out and the other parent said no, and uh, and that doesn't... <laughs> that doesn't lead to anything good, I think, in the long run.
1: Yeah, no, it confuses the family, you know, it confuses yeah. the rest of the family, too, because really I can't put enough emphasis on the fact that I have another child, and he's, that's really formed parts of the way that we've dealt with this. But one thing that's really hard for me is anything that he does that reminds me of his brother in any way, including things like having arms, <laughs> really frightens me.
2: Mm. Um, Mm-hmm, I
1: wanted to be mm-hmm. as different from his brother as possible. And, of course, we're entering the teenage years. He's 14 now.
0: Uh, which is uh, just that time yeah. when when uh, you started seeing these symptoms in your first son.
1: Exactly. So it's it's a real test of your sanity to try and be as normal as you can with his second child, allowing him to do whatever, exploring and make whatever mistakes. Fortunately, he has, well, I guess that's another thing that, that, some people have different views on, but we have never sheltered him from this. He's seen his brother in just about every state of impairment. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows everything his brother's been through. Mm-hmm. And he's seen what it's done to his brother's life. You we know, haven't made a secret of it. And right now he says, as his brother has told him during his more lucid moments, he never wants to try anything because he's afraid if he does and has the same proclivities, he'll just get sucked in like a huge vacuum. Which is what it looks to him like happened to his brother, it actually kind of looks to all of us like that,
0: yeah, yeah i can um, I can totally see that
1: so he is you know kind of at least so far really really heading in a different direction, and we certainly hope that could take of course, but I have friends who had an older sibling who gave the kind of trouble ours ours has given
2: mm-hmm. say
1: that you know we have to be really careful not to have perfectionistic expectations of him and to to load him down with the burden of being the perfect child. Um, so we try not to, but at the same time, I was talking to a friend the other day about some plans I have coming up with my son. I, I like to do a lot different things with him. I've got a lot of flexibility in my work schedule. And um, in a very real way, and this is going to sound very morbid, in a very real way, I had already lost my other child by this age. Mm-hmm. He's gone.
0: I think and, yeah I totally agree that that the when the disease the disease kicks in and takes over I mean you you in a, in a very real way you lose the person that was there and and yeah, you're seeing he, just, just just seeing the disease
1: Exactly and and um so I find myself learning to pack as much as I can into this time where I can tell that my child is still there Mhm And um you know I hope I don't wear him out with it <laughs> But you know, really? we took him whitewater rafting this year. We took him to Disney World. We took him skiing. I'm about to take him skiing again. I'm going to take him to you know Kennedy Space Center for, mm-hmm. for spring break and just everything I could think of that I wished I had been able to do with the other child that I already couldn't do by this age. Yeah, I literally couldn't do it. And I guess one other thing I would tell you that my husband and I have coined that has been a pretty useful perspective for us in dealing with this is. We honestly think of his addiction as a parasite. Yeah. Like a parasite has come to live in him. And it's like invasion of the body snatchers or something. Yeah. And sometimes we can see him kind of coming to the surface a little bit. And certainly when he has some clean time, he's more like himself than he has been in years. Yeah. And then we can see the parasite coming back. And the parasite says, maybe I'll make an appointment with a sedation dentist to get drugs.
2: Hmm.
1: Or maybe I'll go to a primary care physician and complain of aches and pains and get an opiate. You can see the parasite wake up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and once it's awake, you can see its eyes darting around, and you can see it stretch its limbs and and it starts to inhabit them again.
0: So, you you've had this experience with your older son, and um, I can hear that there's there's some fear that this could happen again and hope that it won't. Um, how do you see your programs, your time in, in Naranon and Alanon, um, helping you to walk, to balance that, um, to not let the fear and the hope sort of take over your life?
1: Well, there's a couple of different ways that the tools really help with that. The main one, of course, being trying to live in your present day. Uh-huh. Um, you're kind of just for today root phrases and, and, and things like that. It can really keep you rooted in this very moment. And I do that a lot. I do a lot of um what I think of as kind of on-the-go meditation. I don't really sit down and map out 30 or 40 minutes yeah. to, to stare at a wall. But what I will do is I have several different kinds of patterned breathing that I'll do uh-huh. for short periods of time and stuff like that to bring myself back into a moment. Or I will literally just sit I'm on the couch with my 14 year old and my dog and I'll sit there and I'll very intentionally feel everything there is to feel, smell everything there is to smell and be there. Uh-huh. Um, so that's one thing that helps. But of course the other thing that helps is realizing, and I've, I've really dealt a lot with this with my sponsor because she, um, she had almost exactly the same configuration of children that I do with almost exactly the same configuration of issues uh-huh. and her children are much older well they're of course adults now so she helped me a lot with trying not to over manage my and micromanage my second child uh-huh. because what went on with the first and she basically says that I have to treat him the way that at least for now he is as someone I can trust as someone who does what he says he's going to do and is where he says he's going to be And until he gives me a reason not to trust him, Mm -hmm. I have to give him the same freedom that anybody would give a 14 year old son, you know, to ride his bike to a friend's house, to, I don't know, go to the mall for an hour, although that freaks me out completely because that was like a huge like nexus of all kinds of weirdness. So I discourage that when I can, that sort of thing. But I have to let go and let him do those things or it'll just be too weird for him.
0: And I think, and I don't think it's healthy for you either, is it?
1: No, definitely not, definitely not. And the other thing is I just, I guess another thing that the programs really encouraged me to do is is the whole self-focused thing. I um, I bought a bike and I ride my bike and I started thinking about the things I used to do when I was 10 because I have this theory that we're almost like ourselves when we're about 10 years old.
2: Hmm.
1: And then as puberty hits, we start worrying about things like body image and impressing the other sex and all that kind of stuff. But before all that stuff starts up, we're just as quirky as we can be and mm. we don't, we don't really, we're just who we are. It's like everybody's Junie B. Jones when they're a little kid, right? So, yeah. um, I started thinking about all the things I used to like to do and I was always reading or I was always knitting or crocheting or doing some kind of handcraft or I was on my bike or I played three musical instruments.
2: Mm.
1: Well, I've started, I've been in an orchestra now for two years playing my favorite instrument to play. I started taking piano lessons again and took those for a couple of years and now I'm teaching myself to improvise. Um, And I knit and ride my bike. So I've I've started trying to kind of reclaim my stuff and I also really have uh, work that I love. And um, it's flexible and while all this was going on in its most intense portions, I decided to homeschool my second child. I mm-hmm. couldn't bear the thought of sending him to any of the middle schools around here because I guess that's kind of when I feel like the parasite moved in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I homeschooled him for two years, worked as little as I possibly could and still keep my hand in. Yeah. But I started to realize that I really, really love and derive a lot of identity from my work. I'm really good at it. I go there. I know what's expected of me. I get approval from other adults for what I do. I'm valued for what I do. I know what I'm supposed to do, which in parenting, frankly, a lot of the time... <laughs> you oh, <do>. yeah. <laughs> um,
0: it's all on-the-job um, training. There's no manual.
1: Right, exactly. And that's even before the big features of getting to go to the bathroom by yourself and eat meals at regular time. You add all that together and working is just the greatest thing since sliced bread. So <laughs> We've got him back in school this year, but we did, I will say that we did go with a much smaller school. It's a Christian school and it has His class, his 8th grade class, has 45 kids in it.
0: So a little more manageable. Everybody, yeah. Uh
1: And so that was kind of where I needed to be in order to have a comfort level with him going back to school. Mm -hmm. And that's actually worked out really well. Um, It tends to be a little more conservative than we are politically and probably in terms of religion. But, you know, we just have talked with him about that. Yeah. yeah. Fine. We're able to kind of bridge that over with him. Mean, he's got his own beliefs, and and we are church-going people. We just aren't fundamentalist church-going people. Yeah.
0: And, well, uh, one of
1: the most interesting things about all this for us has been um, in the middle of all this sort of, and quite ancillary to it, my son came out, and he's also gay in addition to everything else that's gone. And when we first heard that, we were so relieved because we thought, Oh, my gosh, maybe that's what this has all been about. Maybe this was all about some sort of angst that originated from identity issues around that. Mm-hmm. And now that he's got this worked out and he did have a partner at that time, it was his first real boyfriend, and we really liked him and he was a really neat person when he was around him and mm-hmm. he was helping him in early recovery and stuff. So that's another piece of that story. But the interesting thing for my younger son and, and mm-hmm. basically it. It, it, it isn't even a non-issue for our family. Again, we were relieved to hear it because it sort of answered a lot of questions in a lot of ways for us. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so when did he, what? How old was he when he came out?
1: This was about the time. See, that's one reason we let him come back home. It was right after he came back. As I tell my friend Riley, he brought a he brought a girlfriend home for spring break, and two weeks later, he got thrown out of college and went to live with a boyfriend. Okay. <laughs> Very tumultuous period of time.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. Wow. But
1: anyway, we and that was one thing he would use to get to get people to let him live with him, is he would tell them we kicked him out because he was gay. Oh, and we totally didn't at all. In fact, we let his boyfriend stay here with him. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, totally not that. Yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, I guess one of the things that's been kind of interesting for us in terms of having my son at this school is that, of course, they preach that, the Bible says that you're yeah. not supposed to be gay. And my son has actually done all this research and found the verses in Leviticus that say that. And he said, well, then where are your earlocks? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, if we're going to yeah. follow every one of these laws, why did we have bacon at lunch? You know? So <laughs> I yeah. don't know. It's It's been an interesting experience for him spiritually to have to come up against that. But yeah. I think it is uncomfortable for him. And the interesting thing is a lot of the kids in his grade feel the same way he does. Uh-huh. I really think fundamentalist Christianity is preaching a dying, uh kind of a dying uh le- electionary on that. I don't think a lot of America agrees with that perspective anymore. But yeah, that has oh, been that something he kind clear. of uses a lever to get people to feel sorry for him, you know. Yeah. My yeah. parents kicked me out because I'm gay. No. <laughs> no <laughs> my you're... parents kicked me out because I'm an IV drug user. Yeah, and and um... I was using with my brother in the house. Oh, that's another interesting tidbit. <laughs> Another, the same friend told me that, um, you know, that I was, you know, telling her about how things went down with Ian and stuff like that. And we ended up having to kick him out. And she said, well, it's a good thing you did because if someone found out that you had an IV drug user in the house with a minor child, you could lose that child. That's considered reckless endangerment. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess whatever the whole moral turpitude things are and all that, not to even get around the whole... Legal drug stuff. So you could again lose your child to, to to public services.
0: When you're just trying to be a good parent
1: to the other child.
0: To the to the other child. But when yeah.
1: she said that to me, it really crystallized for me what it means to try and organize a family around a drug addict's needs. Uh
0: huh. Uh huh.
1: To try and basically subjugate the family in service of that parasite we were talking about. Right. Is just it distorts everything. You can't do it.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to thank you um, for your time and uh, and all of the insights that you've shared with us. I think your story here is one that that a lot of um, you know other parents um, of of young addicts um, would really benefit from hearing your story. And you've done such a good job of presenting it.
1: You know really just to try to help some other people because I think the single worst thing is is finding that syringe and having it all crystallize in your mind and thinking this has not happened to anyone else I know ever.
0: Right and that is as we who have been in the program for a while, we know that's definitely not true. This has happened a lot. But of it's other the most people.
1: dangerous feeling that a person, a codependent, can have. That feeling that sends you scurrying to cover up and scurrying yeah. to enable and scurrying to deny. Yeah. That's the feeling that's at the root of that.
0: Nobody else understands I have to hide this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's why we tell our story. Yep. Yeah. That's why we tell our story. I was looking, um, you know, I talked last week about the book that my my brother gave us for um, Christmas the poetry book, the poetry book. and uh, and there's another one a little bit further along in the book, um, and I forget the exact title. I think it might be called "The Story," and and in it he talks about how you know in their meetings they all tell their stories, and they come to realize that they're all telling the story. And then he says it's like being being on a on an island. You shipwrecked on an island, and then. You know, somebody else washes up on the shore. He stumbles in, in, into the circle and he says, you'll never believe what just happened to me. And he starts telling the story. Hmm. And that's, that's what I've found. Um, you know, yeah. Okay. Some of us are dealing with spouses. Some of us are dealing with children and the details are different. Um, but a lot it's of, a, story. Well, a lot of it's, it's the story. And that's certainly what I found going to open talks. Um, is after yeah, listening, to,
1: listening to,
0: listening to a hundred or more open talks, you know, yeah, oh, sure, the details are different, but it's the story. And that was one of the things that really brought me to understanding that alcoholism addiction, um, has to be a disease. It, it, it has to be a mental wiring thing. And I'm not going to say defect and I'm not going to say error. It's, it's a thing. Um, because all these people with the same story even though they they you know different drugs different way of life different um, you know social settings different um, everything different in the details but all the same in the fundamentals and so you know your well, story has the details
1: disease process could be described in such uniform ways it would be considered a disease process
0: yeah exactly you know people connect with it I mean I connected with a lot of things in there and um, you know, and, and the, uh, you know, the alcoholic and the main alcoholic in my life is, is not my child. Um, I did connect with, I mean, you know, my son went through some experimentation, but apparently he doesn't have that addiction thing in his head. Um, you know, he got caught with cough syrup one day. Uh, you know, there was a number of things he went through and, uh, you know, when you were talking about those things, I mean, I clicked on that like, oh yeah, oh yeah.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, all those things can be part of a normal childhood. You, they just aren't always. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. they all end up adding up to the after-school special.
0: Yeah, the after-school <laughs> special, and and I have to say, you know, we were a little bit hyper vigilant because, um, you know, family history. Uh, well, same here. Yeah. Puts the kids more at risk, and uh, uh, but uh, yeah. So thank you.
1: Oh, well, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. And and keep on trucking. I'm really proud of you for for sticking with the podcast. I know it can't be easy. And I think you're doing a super job. I don't miss any.
0: All right. Thank you. Thanks.
1: All right. Take care, Spencer.
0: You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. After a short break, we will continue with your letters and some podcast news. It seems appropriate to play, at this point, The Needle and the Damage Done by Neil Young. I think it needs no other introduction.
3: you knocking at my cellar door I love you baby Can I have some more Ooh The damage done I hit the city And I lost my band I watched the needle Take another man Gone
0: email bag was pretty full this week, and I'd like to start with an email from Nat in New Zealand. Nat says, Dear Recovery Show, I've been listening to your show for a few months now as a part of my morning meditation. I have a long commute, and I find your show really helpful. So thanks, I really do appreciate it. I started at episode one, and I just now finished number 39, which was about self-care. I think that for me, with regards to self-care, what is important is not necessarily what I do for myself, but why. Am I taking me time or doing something for myself in order to feed my soul, or out of feelings of resentment, self-pity, and deservingness? Because for me, that can be the difference between self-care and a self-destructive, self-indulgent al relapse, which I see as the topic of your next show. I wanted to relate one trick which al taught me, which is about praying for other people who really piss me off. I find it easier to forgive other people than to forgive myself. But then I realized recently that I am not the same person as I was pre-recovery. So now when I get random thoughts popping into my head full of guilt and shame about an episode in my past, I can say something like, Blessings on that poor, silly, angry teenage twit who acted so inappropriately 25 years ago. May he calm the hell down, gain some understanding, and find peace. I'm finally able to forgive myself and release some of this garbage that I've been carrying around. But then, in that case, I'm not the same person as I was last month or even yesterday. Maybe I can say blessings on that angry person who I was this morning? I've got to try that out. Thanks again. I love the show. Nat from New Zealand Brian wrote to us. He said, Hi, Spencer. Long time no talk. Give my best to Kelly and Swetha. I trust they are fine and remain in this thing of ours we call recovery. I hope they still listen to the podcast. I have to give you credit. You must work for an amazing company that allows you to do what you do. I'm sure Ann Arbor is just like any other small town. Everyone knows everyone else's business. I'm sure that the concept of anonymity, at least for you, is but a recent memory. In my case, at least in the beginning, my wife and I tried to keep it a secret. You know the drill. In the end, our loved one made it his business to let the world know our business, naturally, from the addict's perspective. In the end, none of it really matters. Because the people that matter understand, and the people that don't, well, they can all go to hell. When you have been through as much shit as me and my wife have, you learn the hard way who are your friends. My wife and I just passed our one-year anniversary of joining Al-Anon. It was bittersweet. Although my wife and I are moving along, we are still estranged from our loved one. We have rarely seen him this last year. Different family, same story. You know the deal. P.S. Still love the podcasts, Brian. And Brian, uh also sent us a meditation, which um, I'll be getting up on the website probably in a couple days. And, and uh, Brian, I have to say, uh, Ann Arbor uh, is, is a little bit of a bigger town than, than, than you think, I guess, because um, there's still some amount of anonymity around here. It's 100,000 people, you know, so not tiny. Uh, Julie said, thank you. I just want to thank you all again for this amazing thing you all have going here. I'm relatively new to Al-Anon and podcasts, but I've been a fast learner once my loved one entered treatment. She is now out and maintaining sobriety as far as I can tell, but it was a wild two-and-a-half-year ride leading up to her finally giving up. She's not my daughter, but very much like one, and sometimes closer to me than my own. I've been mentoring her since she graduated from college, and she even lived with my family for about a year. It was during that time I discovered her disease. Her family of origin are alcoholics, and she has abuse in her past, so my work was cut out for me. Ha ha. But now I know I am powerless over alcohol. My biggest hurdle is detachment. Not to think about her constantly. I'm so tired of it. This is due in part of her coming home with a boyfriend from the treatment facility. He's a good guy, strong in his sobriety, but, you know, she has a lot she must work on. I know my higher power is in control. It just isn't what I would have chosen. So the readings in LNN literature and your podcasts have been amazing. In fact, they are what I listen to when I go running. Okay, just wanted to drop you a line and say, keep up the good work, Julie. Thanks, Julie, Thanks for that vote of confidence. And uh, I wish you and your loved one the best. Uh, Becky, who was one of the sponsors of the previous episode, said, Spencer, bless you for what you are doing and the service you are providing. I'm fairly new to al just under a year, and I have learned so much, and I'm so grateful for this program already. I regularly attend one meeting a week and listen to your podcast each morning while getting ready for work. I so appreciate you, your guests, your wide range of topics, the insight I've gained from others' journeys, and the recovery that I receive from being part of your listening audience. Please keep up the good, hard work. I know that the show doesn't just happen each week, and that you and others put in hours of effort on each and every one. It is appreciated, and it is worth it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Becky. And she had a tagline, which I liked. If you really want to do something, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. And boy, is that true. We also got emails from Patty and Rebecca on the topic of relapse, and they'll be included in the next episode because our topic next week will be relapse. Unless something comes up, like it did this week. We welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your experience or questions about relapse. And there is um, a post on the website with some uh, questions to think about as you're maybe formulating your um, your comments your, com- your your entry into the conversation so you can call and leave us a voicemail at area code 734-707-8795 you can call right now because the voicemail machine is standing by 24 hours a day you can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation right from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com, And therecoveryshow.com is our website. It has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the music we play, and uh, uh, meditations every now and then. We also have links to some other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And I have to say also Becky... Um, Send a recommendation for xaspeakers.com, which has a bunch of uh, uh, files, uh, recordings of various uh, speakers from many different programs, uh, AA, Al-Anon, NA, and and others, and uh, I will uh, put a link to that on the website. So uh, if you'd really like to join the conversation, I mean literally join the conversation, consider being a guest host by phone or Skype or or Google Hangout. Just email us at feedback at com if you're interested. It does not cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which are running about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Diane and Ruth did. And thank you again, Diane and Ruth. We've also put together a list of recovery-related books, and if you click on the books link at the top of the page, you can order the books, many of the books you can order them from Amazon. And when you order from Amazon through those links, uh, we get a, uh, a small commission, which uh, also helps to, uh, to keep us going. We thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Maybe tell your friends about us, um, or if you're just listening, because we are here for you. I want to close the show with the song, Not an Addict, by the group K's Choice. And again, I kind of feel like no explanation needed here.